This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today, my special guest is going to be a little inside baseball. For those of you who either work in the asset management business or are RIAs, registered investment advisors, or Series 7 uh, broker dealers, this is going to be a, a fascinating question. Rick Ferry is a really interesting guy. He's going to tell a fascinating story about when he was a retail broker in the 1990s uh, the, at Smith Barney, the head of his company was Jamie Dimon, and he went to Jamie and said, hey, this low-cost ETF thing is going to be huge. We should do something. And uh, Dimon kind of blew him off. Uh, he still had a few years left in his contract, so he thought carefully about it and mapped out what became Portfolio Solutions which was very much ahead of its time, one of the first low-cost asset allocation, all ETF portfolios, uh, or mostly ETF portfolios, and uh, launched with a modest amount of money and built it into a billion-dollar business. What I found so fascinating about the conversation is that Rick is really uh, one of these people who basically identified a, a, a need, a, a shortcoming in what Wall Street was offering, identified it, offered it to his company. They turned him down and said, this is too important. I'm going to go do this myself. And um, he's also, you know, a quite a gentleman. He's just a, a delightful person. After the interview, we went out to breakfast. I had some of my uh, office mates join us, and he basically... Um, gave us just a fascinating, um, beyond the hour and a half we talked here, even more inside baseball details of what it was like leaving, setting up. He tells a story in the show about, hey, we I, I pulled a, a desk out of the garbage and set this up in my living room. My wife was my first employee, and that's how we did this, and built it into a billion-dollar business. Uh, they have $1.4 billion in assets. And it's really fascinating to see how um, a person with an idea can say, here's how I'm going to manifest this idea in a business and make this real. And it turned out to be really, really substantial. Um, he was way, way ahead of his time. He's still ahead of his time. I think he's been uh, very insightful in how he constantly evaluates and constantly analyzes the data that his business produces in order to improve that business. Uh, for those of you who work in the industry or are just curious as to how the business of asset management works, I think you'll find this to be a, a fascinating conversation. Without further ado, here is the Masters in Business chat with Rick Ferry. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today, my guest is Rick Ferry. He is the founder and chief investment officer of Portfolio Solutions. A little background about Rick. He is a retired Marine Corps fighter pilot. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and from there, he somehow transitioned into finance. We'll find out specifically how that took place. He's the author of, is it seven books on investing? Uh, six books myself and then a co-author. Oh, and then a seventh with a co-author. Great. And- Here's the your your background is you follow a low cost ETF based 
asset allocation form of investing. But the story is that 20 years ago, you were a stockbroker at Smith Barney, and you had an idea that, gee, this is way too expensive and too much turnover. So you went to the head of the company, some guy named Jamie Dimon, and said, hey, I have this great idea for us. Let's offer a low-cost asset management plan, really low turnover, very, very client-friendly. And uh, he basically gave you a flat-out, no, that's not what we do. You quit and said, I'm going to take this plan and do it myself. Is, is that a, a, a fair description? That's a very accurate description, only I didn't quit right away. Mm-hmm. I had a, I took a upfront money when I switched from Kidder Peabody over to Smith Barney. So I had a five-year contract, and if I left after two years, which is when I had the conversation with Jamie, I would have had to pay back all of this money, and I had uh, redecorated my house. We bought a pop-up camper, and so I... Wasn't able to pay it back, but I took the three years to plan my company, create a business plan, write my first book, so that when I left Smith Barney, I was ready to go. And so you launched Portfolio Solutions what year? 1999. 1999. That, that's fortuitous timing. <laughs> now now you manage $1.4 in assets. Is that a, a, a ballpark number? That's correct. $1.4 so So- Somewhere between being a fighter pilot and getting turned down by Jamie Dimon, what was the transition from the Marines to finance like? How how did you work your way to Wall Street? Well, my undergraduate degree was in business administration. And then in 1980, as you know, we were in a pretty bad recession at the time and there was no jobs available. The unemployment rate was double digits. Interest rates were sky high. Uh, I decided at that time I was going to serve the country, and I went into the Marine Corps. Uh, and when I took the test to go into the Marine Corps, they asked me if I wanted to take the test to become a pilot and go to flight school. Had, had you ever shown previous interest in flying, or was this just out of left field? I saw a picture in the brochure. <laughs> okay. I said, that looks pretty cool. Yeah. It, it certainly does. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll take the test. And I did, and I did fine. And they gave me the physical and checked my eyesight and my height and all kinds of things probed me in all kinds of different ways. And then they uh, gave me the opportunity after I finished my uh, officer's candidate school and then infantry officer's school called the basic school. They allowed me to go down to Pensacola, Florida and try my hand at flight school, which I did. And uh, finished that, uh, ended up down in Kingsville, Texas, married somebody down there, which is why I live down there now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, Was in the Marine Corps for eight years, did two tours overseas, uh, and then left and went into the reserves. And when I did leave the Marine Corps active duty, I was looking for a finance job, and I was picked up by Kidder Peabody. And that's how my career began in this industry. What were you flying before you, uh, while you were in the Marines? I flew uh, A6 intruders, and I flew A4 Skyhawks. So Warthogs and... Uh, No, the Warthogs are uh, Air Force plane. Isn't this similar? Uh, isn't that A six a similar V, or is this a totally different plane? It's, it's a it's a different platform than than the A ten, but uh, A ten. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, that, that's ah, the wall. Go, got it. Walk. And so you did a couple of tours overseas, and right. then Kidder Peabody. What was it like starting out there? Well, I, I was under the impression, like a lot of people were, that uh, stockbrokers were investment analysts, and that we went out and found the best investments for our clients, which made money for them, which in turn made money for the company, 
which in turn made money for me. And I thought that's what stockbrokers did. So their training program quickly disabused you of that. Oh, yeah. I went through uh, the boot camp, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, and learned how to make a 1,000 cold calls a day and try to sell a 1,000 shares of the latest stock. And I began to realize at the beginning that maybe this wasn't what I thought it was. But I did stay in it for 10 years in total. Wow, that's amazing. And so Kidder Peabody then transitions over to Smith Barney. And uh, that was a um, an eye-opening experience as well. Well, what happened was um, I began to do uh, a lot of analysis on the money managers we were hiring at Kidder Peabody to manage money for our clients. And I wrote a program, quite long program in Quattro Pro. Do you remember that? Sure. It was a programmable spreadsheet program. So I- Pre-Excel. Pre-Excel. And, uh, but it was programmable. So I could take the data from active money managers and I could compare them to appropriate benchmarks. First, I could use it to determine what the appropriate benchmarks were. And then I could do an analysis to see how they were doing relative to the appropriate benchmarks. Now, a lot of this technology is off the shelf now, but back then- and that's you know, a button. Late, you push a single button, uh, right. and you can see everybody's <laughs> relative performance. But back in late 1980s or early 1990s, uh, you know, you had to create it yourself. So I created the software, and of course, when you get into that detail of it, you really see a lot of things that other people weren't seeing at the time. And what I was seeing was that the active managers were not beating their benchmark. In fact, they really weren't coming close to their benchmark. And that's before you get to higher fees that active managers have a tendency to, to, to charge. That has to have a big impact on, on the bottom line of clients. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Rick Ferry. He is the founder and CIO of Portfolio Solutions, an asset manager that runs $1.4 billion. Before the break, we were discussing the advantages of or the disadvantages of active management and how so few people actually beat their benchmark. Tell us how you discovered indexing and, and, and why you gravitated that way. So as I was doing this quantitative uh, analysis or attribution analysis on the active managers and realizing they weren't beating their benchmarks, in fact, they weren't coming close to their benchmarks, uh, most of them were not, uh, I began paying more attention to what Vanguard was doing and indexing. Uh, and in 1996, I read John Bogle's first book, Bogle on Mutual Funds. And I was very, very frustrated at the time with what was going on in my industry. And again, I was at Smith Barney at the time. And I uh, read this book and it was an epiphany. It was a, I call it my aha moment. Uh, I can recall exactly where, where this happened. I was at a house of horrors. My children who were teenagers and they were going through the house of horrors uh, before Halloween. And I was sitting in the parking lot waiting for them and they were screaming and yelling and chainsaws going on. And I'm reading John Bogle's book and I'm screaming and yelling in my car saying, I can't believe how stupid I've been. This is so obvious what John Bogle is saying here. I am seeing this daily in my business. I mean, he's right. And I had what I like to call a chemical reaction mm-hmm. at that point. And it was a change of religion. And it was an epiphany. So, so that was was truly when you you pivoted is the new tech jargon. Oh, okay. So your business <laughs> pivoted, and you said no more stock picking, no more mutual fund picking. 
I'm just going to do a broad asset allocation and not worry about uh, not worry about the selection process. Well, not really. Okay. Because remember that was 1996, so I formula- not a lot of ETFs, <laughs> not a lot of of today. There's a, a thousand low cost ETFs sure. back then. You had a handful you can work off of. So I investigated this. Uh, again, this is October. So then in 1997 is when I went to Jamie and I asked him if I could create a program at Smith Barney that used Vanguard index funds and packaged them together into an asset allocation for our clients. And then we would charge a reasonable 50 basis point management fee. Mm-hmm. And that's when uh, Jamie uh, told me that uh, wouldn't be possible in sort of not that many words. He just said, <laughs> wouldn't be possible is too many, too, too many words. He just said, no. And that was the end of it. He said a little more than that, but that's correct. Wow. Um, that's, that's fascinating. So, but so, By the way, I mean, Jamie's a great guy. I mean, I, he was always very approachable and I, I don't want to, I mean, so, he had a job to do like everyone so, else. So let me digress a little bit. So, so who were your early mentors? Who, Bogle, Bogle obviously- had a huge impact. Who else had a, an influence? Well, on well you've had a lot of them on your show, uh, Bogle, uh, Charlie Ellis. I mean, uh, these love were, Ellis. Ellis was it, just, it, uh, what a phenomenal conversation. That and was. Uh, these these great. people were the icons back then. They were the ones who recognized uh, the problems. And uh, there were there was others, more academics, as you read Samuelson and so forth. As you read, you realized that there was a whole group of very smart people out there who had already realized this. And so. Uh, and it was hidden, though. I mean, it really was pushed back as far as you could push it back. And But the academics spoke for themselves. The data was there. And so if you believe the data, you're going to go this way. And that's what I did. So let's talk a bit about indexing. So why do you think it is, and, and Charlie Ellis gave his explanation, why is it that active managers can, cannot consistently beat the market? Well, it's a zero-sum game mm-hmm. where it, the total market return is a finite dollar amount every year. The market's worth $20 trillion. You get a certain rate of return from dividends. You get a certain rate of return from capital gain. I mean, it's a finite amount of money. So if you have one group of people who's trying to get more than that, it has to come from another group of people who get less than that minus fees. Or you can just capture your fair share. Mm-hmm. So in the long run, it's a fee game, period. It, it, you, you have money that goes from one set of managers to another and then back again. And skill is very difficult to even determine, let alone mm-hmm. actually identify in advance. So the best thing for most people to do is to just buy a very low-cost portfolio of index funds and sit on it. And that's the answer. So so that raises a really interesting question about the practice management of of running money. And we talk about this in our office all the time. How much of what you do is behavioral consulting and how much of it is, you know, really trying to prevent people from being their own worst enemies when it comes to investing? Well, I think it's the same thing, behavioral consulting and being your worst enemy. Right. Um, how, how much of the practice are, are those factors? What what do you time wise are you? How much? How often does this come up? Yeah, so ninety five percent of my practice is behavioral control. Really? Wow, that's amazing. Well, because the portfolios don't change. I haven't changed the portfolio in five years. Now you might have a different allocation than the next person between stocks and bonds, but you know that's the driving factor. After that, and we put the portfolio together of stocks and index funds and bond index funds, it shouldn't change. I mean, the process then is just 
staying the course. It's it's driving down the middle of the road and being safe and not f- going to the left or going to the right. And that and that's what we try to do. Our my whole idea is to keep the clients going down the middle of the road, be disciplined, and if they can do that, then they'll get the benefits of the markets. If they veer one way or the other, it gets, you know, hairy if you So will. so now Let's talk about how you handle clients in the event of some turmoil. What was it like in 2000 when, you know, the dot-coms collapsed, or even worse, <laughs> in 1999, I've heard stories from guys who were running assets. I was a market strategist then, and the hard thing was you're running a moderate portfolio. It's doing fairly well, but other people are making 60, 80, 100% in the junkiest of the dot-com stocks. Mm-hmm. And how do you compete with that, even though we all know how that ends? You find the right clients. It really, it gets down to realized that not this isn't for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I need to find clients who also have the religion, and they're just looking for somebody to help them put the portfolio together and execute. Mm-hmm. I, I can't go out and try to convert people. That just doesn't work. You just want to attract clients who buy into your philosophy and you're there to prevent them from from hurting themselves. Yeah, and it's not my philosophy, but buying into the philosophy, Mm -hmm. correct, that I've already bought in. And then they're looking for a way to uh, uh, execute and, and get it done. And that's where we can come in. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Rick Ferry. He is the founder and CIO of Portfolio Solutions. And before the break, we were discussing uh, some of the impact of technology on the business of asset management. So let's start out with um, the robo-advisors. What do you, uh, what do you think about that line of, of asset management? I think it's important. I think it's um, a very good methodology for younger people that didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. Now it's used for everyone. But for younger people in particular, because it gets them into this philosophy of investing a whole lot faster than they would have. And making regular monthly contributions. Yeah, the whole process of uh, saving for retirement as well as investing properly. So uh, for the saving for retirement, a regular regular amount going in is, is, is very important. Uh, but the real interest for me in the robo-advisors is that it gets young people interested in index funds and asset allocation, doing it the proper way right from the start. So I think that's really important. You know, a, a quick digression. I've discovered that a lot of people have to wander in the desert a little bit before they come to the promised lands. And not to get too biblical, but it seems that the people who really buy into the concept of indexing and low-cost asset allocation have to have played the stock-picking game they had, or, or the market-timing game, and they had to come to the same realization you, you did that, hey, this is futile, let me try something that, that seems to make more sense. And they tend not to find that in the 20s and 30s. It tends to be something they discover later in life. I completely agree with that because they've been through the gauntlet, so to speak, and now they've had their pivot, (laughs) epiphany, aha moment, whatever you want to call it. But the robos now, if you're young in your 20s and 30s and you're using this technology, you're getting it right away, even though maybe you don't understand it at first. And that's good because it saves you a lot of money 
and it educates you on, on the power of this strategy. So let me ask the question differently. What does a human offer that a robo or an, let's call them what they are really, it's software algorithmically driven mm-hmm. allocation models. What can a human offer that, that these models can't? Well, a human offers advice. Now, people who are uh, in their 20s and 30s may not need a lot more advice than just put money away, pick an asset allocation that you're going to be able to live with through all market conditions, and just shovel it away. Because my theory is that younger people are fairly homogeneous group. You're getting out of college, you don't have a lot of money, maybe paying off debt, just getting married, starting a family. And uh, so it's a fairly homogeneous group. But as you get into your 40s and 50s, the differences between us financially and socially just change dramatically. And as, and as you're approaching retirement, you really need much more than what a computer can give you as far as answers. And you are seeking much more holistic advice on uh, everything having to do with your finances. And uh, this is where advisors will sort of take the money from the robos just when the robos are becoming profitable on a client. Mm-hmm. And so the that's what I see occurring. And, uh, and so, I, so let's talk about that advice. And, and I jotted a few notes down. Tax issues, intergenerational wealth transfer. Are, are these issues that are million dollar or $5 million accounts? Or are there things that people who are in the 100000 to a million dollar range really are going to need? Yeah, the the big issue is uh, income distribution uh, after retirement, and is my money going to last? That mm-hmm. is the question, the big question out there. Uh, we, by the way, in our office, this is a, this. I, I'm, I'm you're preaching to the choir. We hear this all the time. I'm concerned that I'm going to outlive my money, exactly. and we hear that from people with tens of millions of dollars. Yes. They're concerned that it's not going to last. A- absolutely, it's it's universal. I hear the same thing. And I hear it quite often. And, and you sit back and you say, you only need $150,000 from your $10 million portfolio, and you're worried about running out of money. And I don't know what the mental block is there. Maybe some PhD student can do a, a thesis or something on it. But there's an incredible mental block where they need to be told, or and really told, you're not going to run out of money. If you do this sensible strategy and you don't go out and buy a bunch of Ferraris, you're not going to run out of money. Just one. limited to one. That's all anybody <laughs> needs is you don't need a few. So... That's the universal big question, and y- y- you can get on a website and fill out a bunch of questionnaires and do some Monte Carlo simulations or whatever. It just doesn't uh, replace the human advisor who's sitting there looking at you and saying, you-, you don't have anything to worry about, and your spouse has nothing to worry about. You've got plenty of money, and that's, that's not going to go away. The- the- there's no computer that's going to take that away. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Rick Ferry. He is the founder and chief investment officer of Portfolio Solutions, a $1.4 billion asset management firm. We were talking earlier about the impact of, of what the venture capitalists call fintech. So some of it's robo-advisors, but there's a lot of other technological advances I have to assume you're doing things today that you couldn't have dreamt about 20 years ago. What's the technology like in running a firm? Well, sure. It, there's been a lot of productivity gains in uh, across the board. Um, actual portfolio management software, trading software, 
uh, client contact software, uh, phone systems. It allows you to manage more relationships than you had in the past. So you become more productive uh, in this business, just like in all other industries. Same, same with um, performance reporting. Absolutely. Like it's, it's pretty much the entire business has been made faster, better, smarter, smaller than it was previously, that, that footprint. I assume you're seeing the same, uh, same thing. Yeah, and the technology has become much less expensive, and there's much more of it, and there's uh, a lot of competition, so prices have come down. So what we sell in our industry is intellectual property. Mm -hmm. uh, that's my value added, uh, and be the ability in many ways to be able to explain to people sometimes relatively complicated concepts in a very simplified way so that they can understand it, uh, and that... That's the value added. I can't add any value outperforming the market. And uh, I, you know, I'm not going to give them higher dividend yields from the S&P 500. But um, I have to be able to deliver this intellectual property in an efficient manner so that I remain competitive in the marketplace. Keep your, keep your costs low. Um, you were very forward-looking in the mid-'90s when you first proposed this idea of a low-cost asset management right. firm to to Jamie Dimon at, at Smith Barney back then. So let me bring us up to speed and ask you this question. What do you see looking out 10 years in the future for the advisory business? Well, advisors are going to have to offer different levels of service. Uh, like your firm, uh, we're going to be offering a robo-advisor, which is one level, and it's going to be one price. It's going to be a very low fee. Then there's the next level of uh, some guidance uh, and uh, a touch perhaps once a year um, and then a lot of uh, technology touches, if you will, with the client. And that will be just a slightly higher fee than what the robo fee would be. And then there's a comprehensive financial planning, but not face-to-face. -face. Are you seeing this as potentially happening across the entire industry? I think Are that people going to specialize or is it going to be... Uh, or, or is that just going to be a mix of different companies doing different things? I think that the robo-advisors will have to get into uh, based, uh, personal advice. They'll have to have human advice or they're going to lose their clients. And they're, real, they're going to realize this as the clients grow up and get more money and have, get more complicated lives. They're going to need actual personal advice. And uh, you, you, they're going to have to m merge or create that personal advice. And then there are times when people become not price sensitive anymore because they're at a point in their life where they really need advice. And the cost of that advice at this point in their lives when they're nearing retirement, it, it, they're no longer price sensitive. They just want good quality advice. And you have to be able to offer that as well at a higher level. And then when they're ready beyond that into retirement for a while, they want to step back to the lower advice model they could do that at a lower price point. So I call this the vertical advisor idea. And You think is, that's going to be more widely adopted? I don't know if it's going to be widely adopted or not. I know that, as you said, back in the 1990s when I started the low-cost indexing solution, um, it was ahead of its time. And I think this is where people will go eventually, <laughs> you know, so, the advisors. So now let's talk a little <laughs> bit about running an advisory business and interacting with clients. What's the biggest mistake you see that the average investor makes? The average investor, 
the biggest mistake they make is not staying disciplined to a strategy. But let's even go back from that. The average investor doesn't have a philosophy, and philosophy is different than strategy. Mm-hmm. You and I have the same philosophy about investing. You had Charlie Ellis here, John Bogle. I mean, we have the same. We haven't had Bogle yet, but oh, you haven't. We'd love to get him. Be sure and and, and pass along the. <laughs> okay, word. I will. Um, so we have the same philosophy, but I don't know what your portfolio looks like as far as what funds you have for your clients, and you don't really know what my portfolio looks like, what funds I have for my clients. That's called strategy. Uh, philosophy is universal. Strategy becomes personal and personal to the individual client. So first off, I think it's important, and in a book I'm actually writing right now, that people get the philosophy first. They have the, the, the moment, the pivot, the, the, the epiphany of what it's all about. You get the philosophy first, and then once you get the philosophy, then you can develop a strategy and then once you develop a strategy, you implement that strategy some way, and then you have to have the discipline to stay with it. So it's really three different things. You need the philosophy, you need to implement, uh, create a good strategy for yourself, and then you need a way of implementing it and staying disciplined with it. And so all three of those things are missing. So there's really three issues. People confuse them all, by the way. Philosophy, strategy, Discipline really becomes the key. How much How much of this is disrupted just by normal emotional ups and downs of the average human creature? Well, again, if you had the philosophy, it's much less probability, much lower probability that it's going to be disrupted. If, you, if you've got the vision, then your strategy, you'll be able to maintain it during all market conditions, pretty much. It's a high probability. But if you don't have the, the vision, if you don't have the philosophy – and you have some strategy that you heard on the radio right. uh, last week, uh, or your your advisor or somebody got you into last year and it's not working. Uh, you're going to change it. You're going to have a higher turnover, and you're not going to stay disciplined. So that's why I, I say that the biggest mistake people have is they don't have the philosophy first. You got to get that down first. Then you develop the strategy, and then you're more likely to stay disciplined. We're speaking with Rick Ferry of Portfolio Solutions, discussing some of the classic errors that investors make. Uh, And we were just talking about why philosophy is the most important thing. So you remind me a little bit of some of the things that Larry Swedrow has said. And I'll ask you the same question I asked him. So what is it that investors should do when we start to see volatility in the market or earnings start coming out poorly or the economic data uh, takes a turn to the south? What, What should people do when how do you deal with the pushback you get, because I know what your answer is going to be, from, from clients? So I lived through both the uh, tech crash in 2000, 2001. I remember I started my company in 1999 and then lived through the financial crisis. So two pretty tough times. But the only thing that we did for clients during that period of time besides do regular rebalancing was keep them focused on the long term. And then those clients who really had an issue, and I know that they had an issue when they used this phrase, classic phrase for all advisors, remember it, I can't sleep at night. Classic phrase, which means the next step is capitulation. Mm-hmm. They're going to sell everything. When a client says, I can't sleep at night, you have to do something as an advisor. And 
What you have to do is you have to lower their risk permanently because we, the advisor, has probably made a mistake and allowed them or assessed their risk tolerance at a too higher a level than what it really was. Well, let me, let me interrupt you there. Because, again, I'm, we're very familiar with the same process, but one can't help but notice that what people say during a bull market is very often not what they feel during a, a bear market. That's correct. And so we find out what people's real tolerance for risk is after they've lost 20%. Because right now, so we launched after the bear market in, in 08, 09, uh, a few years after that, and we're seeing the exact opposite of that. It's not suddenly that people's risk tolerance is getting worse. Right. It's that people who said they were conservative suddenly are seeing markets go up every year, especially 2013, the S&P up 30%. Hey, why don't we have more U.S. stocks? Why mm -hmm. aren't we? Well, that was last year. Right. European and emerging market stocks are doing terrible. That's where you want to be, not chasing what just ran up, and that's what rebalancing is about. Correct. But what do you do when you're going to get it both ways? You're going to get it to the upside and the downside. Even if someone says, I'm conservative, and suddenly in a bull market, that assessment was wrong. How much of that is just human nature that whatever's going on at the moment is changing what they think their, their risk tolerance is? Right. So you ask me what percentage of my business is psychology and you know, trying to control human behavior, and what part is actual portfolio management uh, changing the client's portfolios? And the answer is 95% is, is human. So I, I don't want to do anything. I mean, my, my goal is to not do anything. You, you actually had a blog post that said portfolio changes at a glacial pace. Glacial pace, yeah. So the idea, though, is to not do anything. So when I hear it both ways, like right now, you're right, we're getting the calls about, well, you know, we could be a little more oh, aggressive. Bond, no, the, it, it starts out with bonds. Bonds are yielding zero. So why do I want to be in bonds? You know, the real return is zero. I should be in stocks. I have the conversation about how am I going to live in retirement when, my, when interest rates are so low. And therefore, I should be more in stocks. And all I'm saying is people right now are justifying reasons or coming up with reasons why they should be more aggressive. And I have to do the exact opposite of what I did in 2001 and 2008, which is tame the expectations uh, down as opposed to reverse of where, what I had to do in the past, which is to you know, bring the expectations up. We've been speaking with Rick Ferry of Portfolio Solutions. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our full podcast extras where we let the tape run and continue the conversation. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz, I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast portion of our show. My special guest this week is Rick Ferry. Um, let me give people a little background about Rick. So I read and follow a lot of people. And, you know, uh, intellectually there are certain quants I follow because I like their mathematical analysis of investing and, and asset allocation. And it's people like Jim O'Shaughnessy and Cliff sure. Asness. Oh, and absolutely. There's, there's, a, there's a whole run of guys like that. Mm -hmm. um, West um, Alpha Architect, I love that that blog. He does some really interesting momentum value uh, analyses. But when we were leaving 
to launch a new firm, we started looking around and saying, hey, who did this right? Who had the right idea, the right concept, the right execution? And we kept coming up to you. Oh. We kept finding, <laughs> hey, Portfolio Solutions seems to really have set this up. Look, there are tens of thousands of advisors there, and there are thousands, I want to say hundreds if not thousands of advisors running nine figures and, and a whole lot of people running eight figures. And, and But there's, there's only, a, 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 in our opinion, only a small handful of people that from the business perspective of, hey, what's the right way to set this up? What's the right way to execute? You kept on coming up in, in our, hmm. you know, same situation, although it wasn't three years, but it was really the last year of thinking about it and doing these things that we said, let's model this, let's, let's war game this and figure out whose approach has made a lot of sense. This podcast tends to be listened to by a lot of advisors, some of whom are at big firms thinking about launching on their own, some of whom have already launched on their own and have had, you know, a little bit of challenges. So I thought you would really be a perfect person to speak to about that because you were so helpful. Um, your example was so helpful when, when we were launching. So let, let's go back to our earlier conversation about when you were launching your firm. So you spent... Did you say three years teeing this up? Is that about right? Three years. Um, Thinking about it, writing the book. I mean, how much time? You would go home at night, sit in your home office mm -hmm. on the computer, and right. map out business strategies. Ba basically, that's correct. That's that's what I did. Um, For three years? Well, the beginning of that was coming up with the strategies, uh, mm -hmm. how I was going to manage money. Uh, the next couple of years were coming up with uh, how I was going to set up an investment advisor. You know, all of the compliance uh, things. And then the, the last corporate setup, the compliance, Correct. the payroll, the, the back end of running an asset management a business. business. Running a it's, business. It's like running a, a fairly complicated business <laughs> yeah. with an overlay of a lot of regulatory. A lot of compliance. Yes. So you had to figure out the compliance puzzle. And then the very last year, uh, I spent... Uh, you know, I had to register the company. I had to do everything under the radar, by the way, because I was still at Smith Barney. So, right. So uh, is that why you use Portfolio Solutions instead of Rick Ferry Asset Management? No, actually, uh, Barry, I use Portfolio Solutions to make it more, um, uh, have longevity of the company. I uh -huh. mean, I, I believed in the philosophy and I could train other people to, to work with me to, to do this. And if something happened to me, I could hit by a bus or whatever. Uh, the company would survive, and right. so I didn't want to have my name in it. Well, Lehman Brothers was around 160 years, <laughs> okay. and uh, you know, it, it long after Lehman passed away, Dick Fold helped drive the company uh, into that, bankruptcy. That, that's true, but I, I just felt like um, you're not the only one that makes a lot of sense. Portfolio Solutions uh, was a name that I that sort of tells people what we do. We come mm -hmm. up with a, a solution for your portfolio mm -hmm. using this philosophy. So uh, the, the last year going into launch, I had finished writing the book and was uh, looking to, for distribution of the book and you know, the marketing and getting the website ready and uh, all, all that stuff that goes behind launching. And so in July of uh, 1999, after I um, was off contract now with Smith Barney, I had fulfilled my five-year contract. And I vested in the pension plan, by the way, and all of my Citigroup stock options vested, which was nice because I was able to cash them in at a nice high price and get that money to 
buy the uh, software technology and whatnot that I needed. So that's what I did. It it, it does uh, take quite a, quite a while to really do it right, I think. So when you left Smith Barney, what did you leave in terms of how many assets did you bring with you? Uh, I brought the 35 clients and $60 million of assets. That was my beginning. In 1999? In 1999, correct. And I was charging one quarter of a percent management fee, asset management fee. Oh, so you're really not throwing off a whole lot of revenues at that time. I was working out of my living room. I had an old uh, desk that I picked up out of the junk pile when I was in the Marine Corps one day. Uh, somebody had threw a wooden desk out. It was an old Korean War desk. <laughs> I grabbed it and threw it in the back of my truck. Uh, so I had that in my living room. I set up a Costco table where we, my wife uh, filled out paperwork for clients uh, in another corner of the living room, and this was Portfolio Solutions. That, that's amazing. And so now let's, let's talk about how – hey, now. Let's talk about how, how that developed – from sixty million to to one point four billion. So, who's the typical portfolio solution client? A typical portfolio solution client is um, approximately sixty years old, has a, a total net worth of about three million dollars, a liquid net worth of about two million dollars, and so that is, uh, you know typical client who is either approaching retirement or rolling over into retirement. And uh, that's our typical client today. How, you, we talked about this briefly during the broadcast portion. How significant is planning for that distribution post-retirement? How, how important is that to clients and how important is that to your practice? Well, it's becoming much more important because the baby boomers are getting more into retirement. 60,000 so, per day, I think, is right. the number so everyone uses. 60,000 people per day have the big question in their mind, am I going to make it? Mm -hmm. um, so originally, when I launched 15 years ago, there weren't as many people asking the question, but now that the baby boomers are approaching that, we have had to um, come up with different services that help them answer this question. And uh, that's why we're doing this vertical advisor idea, which we had talked about in the previous mm -hmm. program. So you talked earlier also about finding clients who buy into the philosophy that, that you and I both espouse. Let me ask the opposite question. How often do you come across clients that early in the prospect process you recognize, hey, this guy is not a good fit? Quite often. Uh, recognize they're not a good fit. And I'll tell you what the telltale phrase is. And well, don't uh, – we get the – so what's your sharp ratio sort of question? That That's an automatic it, Well, it's exactly question. the same thing. You're talking about performance. Right. So if I get the question from a prospect, well, what's your performance been over the last five years? It It is just a red flag because mm -hmm. if you really understood what we did and you, and you had the philosophy – you were in the church. You wouldn't ask that question. Here's what the market did. Here's what emerging markets and, and developed Bonds XUS did. did. Here's what fixed income did. Here's your mix, basically. This is what you did. Right. And so there's no ambiguity about it. Um, so when people are asking questions about performance, they don't have the vision, and they're not going to be a good client. So that's the number one key right there, the tip-off that this isn't going to work. 
You ever find yourself having to fire a client? I know that's an expression people outside of Wall Street may not be all that familiar with, mm -hmm. but that's the phrase, hey, sometimes you got to fire a client. How, how often does that happen? If you've done um, a good job screening them in the beginning, it shouldn't happen, but every yeah, now and then. I know I have fired clients in the past because they, they call too much. Mm -hmm. They take up too much time. And at that point, we have to say, you know, we're not the right advisor. We're not going to have a, we can't we can't have a discussion with you about what happened in the stock market today, and then have another discussion with you tomorrow, and then have another discussion the next day. That's I'm, emblematic of a deeper issue beneath. It's not the stock market. They're essentially saying, I'm not buying into the philosophy. Right. They don't have the philosophy because if they had the philosophy, then they wouldn't be asking those questions. So it's not a good fit. So the way I fire a client is say, you know. This, I don't think we're really the right company for you. I think you need another type of advisor than what we can offer, and that's how I fire the client. Gen if you gently will. ease them, ease <laughs> them. But it's out. true, though. It's true. It, it's it's a fact that they need more. I mean, they they should be at you know the wirehouses because that's what the wirehouses do. Well, that amongst <laughs> other other sort of things, um, and we talked about technology the other day. You mentioned the wirehouses. So typically, what what for those people who may not be familiar with the phrase, that typically refers to the big brokerage firms. Think Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch. In the old days, it was Bear Stearns and and Lehman Brothers. But I, I guess you could put J.P. Morgan and um, Morgan Stanley. Sure. Wells Wells Fargo is also has a, a used to have a brokerage division. I think they still do. So. What's going on on the old school side of the business these days? Um, they seem to still, be, even though we read about these big teams leaving, these billion-dollar teams heading sure. off elsewhere, their assets under management continue to grow. They are not, um, they are not hurting these days for business. What what's happening on that side of the street? Well, I, I really don't know what. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't answer. Uh, let me let me phrase it differently. How often are you seeing clients come to you from big wirehouses, from from places like Marilyn Morgan? Probably fifty percent of our really? new clients that come in come from the big wirehouses. But realize what's happened since Bernie Madoff mm -hmm. is that clients have diversified into several different advisors. So it's not whereas it used to all come from one place. Now, when we get a new client in, they'll be transferring in assets from two or three different places. Oh, really? Yeah, people have diversified more. And in fact, even with advisors, um, we still get our fair share of people who have us manage all of their money. But I think that in the, in the world of post-Bernie Madoff, that uh, people are comfortable splitting their money between a couple of advisors as well. And we're seeing more, huh, more of that in the last few years. That, that's really interesting. I, you would think the lesson is... Hey, don't put your money with somebody who doesn't use a third-party trusted custodian uh, and pretends to run the money themselves. But uh, that's that's a uh, <laughs> that's a different um, analysis. Is hey, it's not us. It's TD or Fidelity or Schwab or whoever people are are holding their money. So we don't have the right, the ability to go in and and steal your money. Bernie Madoff had the money going right, right. into his checking account. I understand. I understand what happened, but Phil, but emotionally, people are basically saying, "Well, I'm just in case somebody is dishonest, I'm going to split my money in three places, so I can't lose it all." 
We've seen more of that post-financial crisis than we did before the financial crisis. That's correct. So now let's talk a little bit about the financial crisis. You mentioned what it was like living through 2000, 2001. How disruptive was 0809 to your practice? How much did clients freak out? Mm-hmm. Or were people, you know, all right, this is going to suck, but we'll come out fine and everything will be okay on the other side? Even though to, at the time, it very much felt like, hey, this is a one-off. This is a unique end-of-world sort of thing, or at least mm-hmm. that's how a, a lot of places were describing it. Sure. So, of course, we got a lot of phone calls just like everyone else, and uh, 90% of those people, after talking with them, didn't do anything, which was good. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't have to do anything with their portfolios. The other 10%, uh, a portion of them terminated, they capitulated, before we even had a chance to talk with them. What percent? About three. Okay. That's not, you know, I, we hear horror stories about people just... Mm-hmm. You know, losing their mind and and people a third of people's business going away because they freaked out about a particular, uh, hmm. you know, one particular not not from we were at a different firm at the time, but you know, you hear stories going on, you read about people blowing up and imploding, and you know, it, it's really yeah. a challenge to to deal with that sort of influx of of panicked client phone calls, but not not in the. Not in our business. I mean, the philosophy we have, again, in the, the low cost, try to create the correct allocation for you in the long term, educating the clients and reminding them. Um, a vast majority of our clients didn't do anything. Um, a very no panic phone call, no nervous email. Vast majority. Just, really? That's fantastic. Uh just you know, continue to do what you do, and it's because they had, they were in the church, right? right. They understood it. They they were part of the philosophy. They got it. Hey, this is going right. to be we, tough, but we'll ride it out, and we'll be fine on the other side. Right, because you you have to select clients who have the same philosophy as you. You you can't try to con- convert people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can try to convert people on radio shows and such. But by the time we're speaking with them one-on-one as an advisor, they have to already – we have to already see eye-to-eye because if not, I can't convert you. So that, that, <laughs> I was going to – that leads me to a question I've been thinking about. How much time do you spend educating clients? Because uh, there, there's a fine line between proselytizing and saying, hey, let me give you a deeper dive into why we have this philosophy. And, and, and where does that cross the line? Sure. So most of my education is done through the – uh, books and uh, my blog and articles, uh, as opposed to one-on-one conversations. Again, uh, because I structured this company to be uh, low fee, including our fee, uh, I can't go out and try to convert people. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, person one-on-one. I don't have the time for it. Right. I don't have the resources for it. I you know I can't do that. So, uh, but I can do it in mass by writing books and then they come to me because they read a book or they read a blog or they read a lot of stuff and they ended up coming to me and saying, I get it, and now I'm interested in having you manage my assets. Well, that's a good conversation. Mm-hmm. So the firm itself, you mentioned you're, you're running lean. How many employees do you have? Well, we actually now have about 16 total employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, we On have, $1.4 billion. That's not a, a huge ratio. So there, 
my, my formula has always been one new employee for every hundred million of assets. And mm-hmm. try to keep to that as much as I can. But as you get larger, over a billion dollars, you need to add different levels. Like I had to add a compliance manager full time. Um, you have to add a operations manager full time. So that was over a billion dollars. That's suddenly yeah. when it becomes. Hey, right. I can't just outsource this. There, there are things known as RIA in a box or right. outside compliance yeah, companies. Right. You can now outsource chief compliance officers. There's third parties that'll actually be registered on on the um, uh, Form ADV with the mm-hmm. SEC, and they're not an employee. They're a third party consultant, mm-hmm. but they're on your your SEC documents. A billion dollars is the line in the sand where you start. I think so. I mean, there are different levels as you grow your advisory firm where you realize you have to uh, do creative uh, reconstruction. What's the word? Creative destruction. Creative destruction, right. I'm sorry. So um, you you realize that what you've put together can take you to a certain point, and then you've got to recreate it, and that'll take you to another point. So it scales, and then at a certain point you notice, hey, there are a lot of stress points here. I need to throw some some intelligence and, and a body at that, maybe a little technology, and that right. prevents Right, and, and again, technology does drive a lot of this, so as technology gets better, we are able to do it, scale it more so it can go further. But as you continue to grow, you have to change things to scale get, up. Scale up. For example, there was came a point when I personally couldn't speak with all the clients anymore, so we began to hire uh, certified financial planners who came in, and now we have three full-time certified financial planners. They're speaking with the clients on a day-to-day basis, and I'm just there saying, hey, you know, thank you for being with us, and you know, if you have any questions uh, for me, just give me a call. But it's these CFPs who are speaking with the clients uh, one-on-one now on a daily basis. We, we do something very similar, although we haven't, you know, we're 18 months old, we haven't scaled up the way the way you have. What's fascinating in the process of developing this is, so we use um, certain reporting and performance software like Orion. Sure. And years ago, to crank out what you push a button and Orion generates, it would take two accountants working for a week to get the quarterly statements out to the clients. Yes, I remember those days. Today, (laughs) all the clients have full access to it. They push a button, they get... We tell them, hey, it's 24-7 access, but please try not to check at 24-7. You know, look at your monthly, quarterly, year-to-date, you're fine, but don't obsess over it. It's going to go up and down. That's what markets do. And we have actually now outsourced a lot of our uh, portfolio management function to uh, Black Diamond. Oh, sure. And so this this just occurred, and so we're coming off of um, APX, which is Advents in in-house, you know, on server software, uh-huh. and we've gone to the cloud, Black Diamond, and we are, uh, and, and they are actually doing a lot of our reconciliation and-, and uh, It's the back trade. end, it's the administrative and accounting right. and, and reporting functions. Right, and reporting functions and portal and all of that for the clients. So uh, it, although it's expensive for us, I, we're paying about $100,000 a year for this but on a per-household basis, it's really not terrible. Well, it's also now I don't have to hire two people in portfolio management. So it's those two two CPAs that you were saying in the back crunching the numbers. Okay, so th- those people I don't have to hire because I've been able to use technology and put it up in the cloud and outsource it to um, Black Diamond. And then also 
do a sub-advisor role or a TAMP role using that same technology, which allows me now to expand my intellectual property, which again, that's what I'm selling, to other advisors who don't want to manage money, and they can put their clients with us and we can manage their clients' money in a customized fashion at a very low fee using the same technology. It's funny because it's it's a business line that we've been exploring because we get inquiries all the time from other advisors. Sure. Um, you do the same thing I do. You go around the country. You speak at a lot of conferences. One of the questions I ask if I'm speaking to a room full of CFPs or financial planners of some sort, hey, how many of you run your own assets? Less than half of the hands That's correct. Up. And then how many of you are happy with your outside management? And less than half of those, those are good questions. Up. <laughs> it, it, it's really a fascinating. Uh, so on that business line right. of you're the adv- institutional advisor to other advisors, advisors, sub advisor. What do you what do you charge them in terms of um, asset fees? So the the portfolio management fee to their clients is twenty five basis points. Mm-hmm. But then if we do some administrative work for the advisor themselves, like collect their fees for them, it's a little bit more than that. And so here's the debate that we've had internally. How much does that make what you offer as portfolio solutions to potential clients um, less valuable? As opposed, or, or let me rephrase that, less unique. So right now, if someone wants Rick Ferry, they have to come to Rick Ferry. But if this advisory to advisors business expands, are you running the risk that people are getting Rick Ferry without having to pay Rick Ferry directly? Uh, no, because the way I looked at, at the pricing of this is that we get paid 25 basis points for portfolio management, whether it's through the robo-advisor, which we're creating, whether it's through our own channel, or whether it's through a sub-advising. We're getting paid 25 basis points for the intellectual property of, and the running of the portfolio and creating the portfolio. The extra fees are for advice. Either you're going to get the advice from my CFPs or you're going to get the advice from... Exactly. exactly. I got it. Uh, Listen, I'm a big believer in that. We had Larry Swedrow here before. I'm a big fan of Carl Richards, who who does the uh, Sharpie sketches and writes in the Times. (laughs) And I think Buckingham runs about $5 billion. I'm doing this off the top of my head, so double-check this uh, when you hear this. But I think they advise on another $22 billion. Sure, that's BAM. BAM, that's right, Buckingham. Uh, yeah, exactly. And what what happened there, and I can't speak for, for Buckingham, but what they did was they created an a- asset management company called Buckingham Asset Management. And they realized that they can run money not just for their own clients and advise their own clients, but since they had built out the back office, they can run money for other advisors using their strategies as well. But it's the other advisor who gets paid the advisory fee. Mm-hmm. They get paid the portfolio management fee. And it's the right. same thing with portfolio solutions. You're, you're, breaking the, you're breaking the total cost to the client into discrete pieces. You're paying this much for right. the asset management business. You're paying this much for the advice. advisory side. And for that's, the correct. Advice. That, that's correct. And, but, but uh, of course, all the advisors who go with us have to have the same philosophy. So it's not like we're going to do tactical asset allocation because an advisor believes in that. So just like uh, a DFA and just like a BAM uh, client, uh, you you, you have the philosophy, and then uh, you're coming to us for um, implementation and advice, perhaps, if you're an advisor, on how to structure the portfolio. I mean, do you really want to have the S&P 500 or should you have a total market? Uh, You know, do you need a QQQ, you know, NASDAQ? I mean, really, what is that? Um, God, uh, you're you know. you're jingling a hundred <laughs> thoughts in my head. 
One on, on fund families, one on why the S&P is not your favorite uh, asset management, one on smart beta. Let me, let me throw some of these out, out okay. at you. So our portfolios are Vanguard, Dimensional Funds, sure. some BlackRock, some um, Double Line, some Wisdom Tree. Mm-hmm. What what fund families do you tend to focus on? Well, it's mostly Vanguard and DFA. That's that's a majority of our Same assets. Um, there might be uh, an iShare or two out there, but uh, you know we're trying to capture the return of a risk in the marketplace. I don't even want to call it an asset class because asset classes may not have returns. And asset. We're looking at a risk in the marketplace, call it market beta, at U.S. equity beta, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to try to capture that. Well, now, what's the best way to capture that? Well, first, you have to look at all the different products that are available. There's different indexes out there. There's a Russell 3000. There's the Dow Jones Total Market. There's the Crisp Total Total Market Index. I mean, Wilshire 5000. Wilshire 5000. Okay, so now you have all the indexes that out there that have been created that capture this. And then you have to go to the marketplace and see what products are tracking these indexes and you end up running into Vanguard and you run into iShares and you run into State Street and you also are now running into Schwab. And so you have to do an analysis of uh, fees and uh, turnover, taxes, to come up with what is the best product that I can select that best captures the risk that I'm trying to capture. And a lot of times it ends up with Vanguard. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they're pretty clearly the lowest cost provider almost across the board. For beta. There are exceptions. For beta. For beta. Correct. Right, that, for, for just market. Meaning for people who just want to get what the market is returning. Stock market, them. bond market, that's correct. Now, if you're talking about smart beta, if you will, or factor investing, mm-hmm. um, strategic beta, alternative beta, additional beta, exotic beta, whatever you want to call it. I mean, the fact is you're, you're not actually going after the market. You're going after a strategy that's used in the market, then you have to try to figure out how can, and what risks, by the way, are that strategy giving you, and therefore what risk premiums you might be able to draw from it. Now you have to look at what is my best bang for the buck? I mean, what funds produce, it gives me the highest exposures to those risks, therefore potentially highest exposures to those risk premiums for the amount of fee that I'm paying. And here, is where you end up with somebody like DFA. Mm-hmm. Because even though they're not inexpensive relative to Vanguard, I mean, they are more expensive, you're getting more bang for the buck. You're getting more risk exposure to the risks that you want. So uh, you would look at them. You would look at research affiliates, uh, sure. Rafi. You would look at other types of products that are in that space. So we, we had, um, on in terms of both Vanguard and research affiliates, the conversation we had with Jack Brennan, was quite fascinating, and I asked him, hey, how come you guys aren't doing smart beta? And uh, he's chairman now, he's no longer CEO, and I think that it's something that they've been wrestling with internally. We're, we have, uh, coming up in a few months, we're gonna have David Booth, we're gonna have that conversation about mm-hmm. um, their particular form of, I don't know if I would call it smart beta so much as I would call it a uh, a tilt towards small cap and value. That's really how they built their I think they're running about three hundred plus billion dollars. Yeah. Now. Uh, uh, well, first of all, smart beta is just a marketing term. I mean, there's nothing smart about. Uh, there's nothing smart inherently smart about taking more risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you decide to take more risk to get a higher return, fine. And if you decide that the risk isn't going to be beta, but it's going to be 
small cap risk or it's going to be a value risk or momentum risk or it's going to be a quality risk or something. I mean, if you believe in Fama French mm-hmm. methodology, you're going to say these are risks. Eugene Fama, recent winner of the Nobel uh, Prize for his work on um, efficient markets and, and how challenging it is to beat the market. Mm-hmm. And French is also a... Uh, is he a former Chicago or Pennsylvania guy? I'm trying to remember where he went, where he teaches. But he's a consultant to uh, Dimensional Funds and is sure. one of the key architects of, hey, here's a, a, a factor that the makes— Fama, The Fama French three-factor model, which uh, codified, if you will, the, uh, the idea that portfolios— have three distinct risks, and you can measure the risk, and the risks are the return, uh, the sensitivity to the market, the sensitivity of small caps to large caps, and the sensitivity of basically value stocks to growth stocks. And that covers 95% of the variability of a diversified portfolio of stocks. So kind of captures most of it. There's Mm -hmm. there's a few others in there like momentum and quality now. So it's really a five-factor model that captures a great portion of the variability of a, of a diversified stock portfolio. So you can now design your equity portfolios to have tilts or overweightings to these various risks with the hope of getting a higher return than the market. Although, you know, in the farmer French world, it's only because you're taking more risk. Right. The, the, the translation is Small caps are less covered. They have less Wall Street coverage. They're less understood. There are thousands of them. They have a tendency- Less liquidity. Less liquidity. They they tend to wink in and out of existence, and hence you're getting compensated a little more um, for the additional risk. There's also less efficiency in that space, and that's why there's some, I hate to use a dirty word, alpha, to be captured. When we had our conversation with Rob Arnott of Research Affiliates- sure. I really liked his definition of smart beta, which was, hey, a market cap weighted index is the worst way to assemble an index. And you run into all these problems, especially at the end of the cycle when it's, you know, think back to 99, 2000 and when it was the Cisco's and Yahoo's and and I can't even remember the other companies that were the prime drivers Mm -hmm. back then. And if instead of doing it market cap based, Hey, you do it by revenue or profits or dividends or some other reasonable factor. That that's his explanation. You're 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 you're, you're confused. He's well. I know I know Rob very well. I speak with Rob all the time, and uh, I'm a big proponent of what he's doing. I follow all his research, uh, and uh, and they do a great job. Um, that said, but <laughs> however, <laughs> I can tell you from the south because that's just a genteel politeness that we just don't see in New York anymore. That's a lost uh, era. However, this idea that it is something wrong about a cap weighted index is just wrong. Uh, cap weighted index are a measurement of the value of the equity market, and that's what they were designed to do, and only. Uh, only out of uh, sheer poor performance by the active managers have indexing using cap weighting become so popular. In other words, you're trying, you're trying to say that this isn't a good way to invest, yet it outperforms most everything else. It's right. like our form of government, right? right. What it's a terrible best. government. Democracy is terrible, except it's the worst form of government. <laughs> except for all others. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> so that's really interesting. So 
you are on the same page as John Bogle when it comes to smart beta, but I think in two very specific ways, he's not a fan of smart beta. And I'm saying dimensional isn't a smart beta so much as a, these are the factors that- But it's all the same thing. Again, smart beta is just a marketing term and Rob picked up on it, Rob Arnott. I mean, he picked mm -hmm. up on the word smart, but he loved it because all of a sudden it was a very easy way to talk about fundamental indexing and it made it sound so chic. Fundamental indexing is a much better description than- I, Absolutely, and in fact, I had this conversation with Rob Arnott. I said, uh, fundamental indexing has legs because it actually it describes what you're doing. And, Smart, and, it, and it seems to work for people who want to uh, have those Have those uh, you know, tilts, if you will, towards value stocks uh, specifically. Um, sure, I mean, it's, it's a methodology or a strategy that you can use to get those tilts. So DFA is another strategy you can use to get those tilts. So there's a lot of different strategies out there uh, that you can use to get these various tilts. And it's a question of a cost per unit of risk. You know, from our perspective as an advisor, looking at all these different products out there, determining how much tilt is there, or how much uh, load is there to these various factors, risk factors, and how much am I paying over beta to get those loads? And it's a cost per mm -hmm. unit of risk to come up with what funds you should invest in if you decide to even do this. Now, it's a big question of whether you should even do it. You have to really understand it to do it, because if you don't understand it, then the next time these things don't work, like in the 1990s when large cap growth was doing very well. Value was just, you know. They're getting plummeted. Do you recall hearing people say in the 1990s, so I've been in the business long enough, that Warren Buffett is washed up. He's old school. <laughs> he just hasn't adapted to the new paradigm. The new paradigm. You remember that. Exactly. Yep. That was the word, the new paradigm. And, and here's the thing. If our clients or advisors don't understand what they're really doing with this smart beta stuff and doesn't really understand where they're potential returns are supposed to be coming from, then how long are they going to stick with this strategy when it doesn't work for 10 years? And there have been 10-year periods of time where the, it didn't work. So, and what's going to happen to your business if you hang your hat on this stuff and it doesn't work? What are your clients going to think of it? And how long are they going to stick with you when the guy down the road is just doing what the market's doing and you're not? And so it, there's a certain business risk to advisors to going down this road, and if you do, how much are you going to expose the portfolio to it? And uh, we, we made the decision that no more than 25% of the equity portfolio will be exposed to these various factors, and the rest of it's just going to be beta, because um, I don't know if it's going to work. I know it worked in the last 15 years. It was fabulous coming off the tech bubble. Um, but if you look back 10 years, years prior to that, yeah. I mean, it's not so rosy. It looks really bad. So um, I don't know if it's going to work for 10 years going forward. There's a thing called factor crowding. Have you heard that sure, term before? Of course. Okay, so you got all this money coming into these smart beta strategies. A lot of it potentially for the wrong reason. They're, they're chasing performance. They're right. chasing the hot dot, if you will. They're chasing smart beta rather than factor investing. That, that crowded trade approach is why nothing works always all the time. And you tend to see suddenly value will fall out of favor just as growth fell out of favor. And the core adherence to that will ride it out because they know eventually, again, we cross the desert and get to the promised land. But um, 
that that's just the nature of of human psychology and investing. And and I don't know if we are at a point where so much money is going into these strategies that we're going to have a very poor period of performance for a while, or not. Uh, Any chance we're going to see that in indexing? And I, I, I the argument no, I, I have with so. people is, hey, Vanguard is now three trillion dollars, but there's you know sixty trillion dollars in in investable assets that are either equity or equity related. It's a tiny percentage of, of take indexing is still the minority investment versus active management. I talked with David Blitzer from mm-hmm. S&P. S&P. Another guest for you if you're mm-hmm. looking for someone. He would be great to have on the show, I think. Um, $2 trillion are directly benchmarked to the S&P 500. Yet, there's still volatility between... Uh, S and P five hundred stocks. In other words, it, it really hasn't changed the market. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit, perhaps. But if you're buying a total market as opposed to the S and P, it, it's a wash. There's there's no effect on you at all. So, uh, I don't think that you know, how 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 much uh, indexing is too much indexing. 98% of the market being indexed, maybe that becomes too much? I mean, I, I don't know what the answer uh, is. And the thesis <laughs> is that if indexing, as indexing grows, it just creates opportunity for people who are not indexed. And that's just not true. We haven't seen that at all. Last year, 85% of large No, no, I mean, when it managers. hits like 60, 80, some that, massive size, that then creates a little bit for the alpha chasers. That's the theory. Only remember, we just said that two trillion dollars is already benchmarked to the S and P five hundred. Yet last year, only fifteen percent of large cap U.S. managers outperformed the S and P five hundred. So mm-hmm. where where's the data? Not yet. The, no, the argument yet. would be well, <laughs> as the, as alpha is created by people identifying inefficiencies, and as more and more people leave active, that's how you generate. Uh, you know, the Ellis thesis is there's so many smart, hardworking, intelligent people chasing alpha, they kind of cancel each other out. Once that number of alpha chasers drop, look, we have 10,000 hedge funds. Uh, Jim Chanos had said, you know, alpha is created by 200 hedge funds out of 10,000. P.S. It's the 200 hedge funds that existed when there were only 200 hedge funds, it's the same 200 guys, and every, all these other alpha chasers are really just fee chasers. Um, so maybe you need that same sort of uh, situation to take place before the active funds start to create some value. There's, Like Charlie Ellis said, there's too many people I, so that there is almost no inefficiencies left to be mined, there's no alpha left to be gotten because they all cancel each other out, essentially. I'll, I'll add something to that, too, which is that there, now not only are there a lot of alpha chasers now, but there's also less stocks on the stock exchange. So uh, the number of stocks on the, uh, the U.S. exchanges that, that trade with any amount of volume um, has been cut in half since uh, 1997. So over the last 20 years, there used to be cut over in half. yeah there used to be over 7,000 stocks that trade on the U.S. stock exchanges that had enough volume mm-hmm. to be in the uh, crisp indexes. That is now down to something like 3,600. So companies are no longer capitalizing themselves using private equity. There's less companies trading on the U.S. exchanges. So you've got you've got more advisors and more hedge funds chasing. Fewer opportunities just because there were just fewer companies, too, it, as well. It should be no surprise <laughs> that Alpha is basically going away. 
for um, the most part. There's sure. less and less people. At one point in time, it was 40%. In any given year, it was never the same people, and it was pre-fee. But the numbers we used to hear was 30 40% of people were outperforming. Then it became 25%. 20%. I've watched okay. that sort of drip, unless you're going to tell me. I'm going to tell you otherwise. Okay. Um, depending what part of the market you're looking at, there's always – that part of the market that outperformed. So if large cap stocks outperformed last year, you're going to find that few large cap active managers outperform. And if mm -hmm. small cap underperformed, you're going to find that more small cap active managers outperformed than large cap managers. Now, why is that? Because the – the indexes are pure and the managers are messy. Mm -hmm. So if small cap underperformed and large cap outperformed and the managers are messy and they kind of bleed off into mid cap and even some small cap, even though they're still in the Morningstar large cap right. box, they're going to underperform because they're bleeding and the index itself is pure. Cla classic style drift leads to right. that, that sort of issue. It's not really style different. It's just this is they they do more of a uh, equal weighting approach rather than the market does okay. cap weighting. Okay, now you get the small cap side and small cap underperforms. But since the small cap managers are not all small cap, they bleed off into some mid cap, you know, maybe even a large cap or something. They're going to pick that up that that style difference up, and they're going to outperform. So, hmm. in the asset class or the style that underperforms, you will find more managers that outperform, and in the style that outperforms, you're going to find more managers that underperform. That makes sense. So, it's <laughs> it's I, I, I see exactly where you're, you're going with that. Um, let me bring this back to John Bogle, because I wanted to ask you something. I got a lot of pushback to a column where I basically said, hey, let me tell you where John Bogle is wrong. And it wasn't that his philosophy of indexing was wrong or his low-cost, low-turnover approach was wrong. There are certain things that I disagree with him about, and I'm finding that you disagree with him as well. And I, oh, look at you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to uh, throw no, you I, under not, the bus I, right listen, now. Listen, I, I, I am not... I disagree with John on a few things. So. Okay, so let's, let's start with <laughs> ETFs. Right. He is not a fan of exchange-traded funds. Because he says people tend to use them to overtrade with. Sure, he says it's like throwing, uh, uh, giving match to an, uh, matches to an arsonist or something like that. Um, Words to that effect. <laughs> something, yeah. Yet, if you get with him privately, he will say that there's a handful of ETFs that actually make sense. So you're outing him as not as anti-ETF as he claims. Here's the, here's the irony of the situation. ETFs have done more to promote John Bogle's philosophy mm -hmm. than anything in the last 25 years. So all of the robo-advisors, all of the other advisors out there that are doing ETFs, mainly using beta-type products to put mm -hmm. together an asset allocation, that is promoting John Bogle's strategy. So the irony is even though John doesn't like exchange-traded funds or has said publicly he doesn't like them, that product or that structure has done more to promote his philosophy than anything in a very long time. So he should love ETFs for that reason. Let's talk a little bit about um, overseas investing. I'm assuming your asset allocation has not just U.S. stocks, but developed ex-U.S., emerging markets, yes. et cetera. Bogle, not a fan, says the currency risk offsets any gains that you'll get from overseas investing. How, how would you reconcile that with John's, uh, your approach with John's approach? And I, by the way, full disclosure, I'm in your camp. I think, uh, 
And that's before we start talking about currency hedged ETFs like you can buy um, from Wisdom Tree for Japan is pretty pure. Europe kind of misses half of it. But um, how do you reconcile that with Bogle? John's a brilliant guy. <laughs> Here comes some Texas nice. <laughs> I, I what never... I really mean to say is... <laughs> However, <laughs> I've never uh, believed that uh, in, in his approach to the fact that while U.S. companies are doing at least in the S&P 500, are doing 40% of their business overseas. Therefore, you're getting overseas exposure. That's true. But overseas companies are doing business with the U.S. Right. as well. So uh, I like the idea of getting more diversification in a portfolio. Remember, we talked about the U.S. equity market is shrinking. The number mm -hmm. of names are shrinking. And, and getting uh, more names in the portfolio via international, where things are expanding and more names are coming on board, especially in the emerging markets, is uh, it, it helps offset the fact that the U.S. equity market number of issuers is shrinking. Uh, but in addition to that, I like the idea of getting some currency diversification in my portfolio, even though you're getting it sort of with U.S. equities because they're doing business overseas, therefore the earnings of U.S. companies are being affected by currencies. This is a direct currency play. And doing rebalancing between U.S. and international gives you a little bit of a a rebalancing benefit between the currencies. So mathematically, John's idea hasn't it 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 makes it sounds good, you know, it's populist if if you will, but you know, from a academic standpoint, you really want to have I about 30% international. We're we're on the we're we're more or less on the same uh Page thirty percent of your total portfolio, equity. total portfolio of your equity. Okay, equity. equity. Yeah. So when we look around the world, I want to say Europe is about twenty five percent of the global equity exposure, at least by cap. You you throw in you, that that's yours. Thanks. I'm still working on the cappuccino. Thank you. Um, by the way, for those of you who are listening, one of the fun things about every time we come into Bloomberg is you have a variety of unsweetened flavored waters they all more or less taste the same that's cherry the other one was lemon it's always i that's why i describe this place as the east coast google because you walk in and it's just it's kind of madness people don't realize this but you see this part of the building when mike bloomberg pushes a button it turns into a rocket and we does it really yeah wow. it's amazing oh, i'd like to they're, get on they're that they're waiting trip. on that so in the last five minutes we have let i got a couple of questions that i i don't want to skip um, and that I try and ask, um, I try and ask everybody. Um, let, let's let's go to the two two big ones, and and you could wax for as long as you'd like on this. The first is, you've seen a lot of changes in the industry since you began. What do you think is the most significant, and is this for the better or worse? Or maybe I can rephrase that. What what changes do you see have impacted the industry for the better, and what is still out there that what changes have impacted it for the worse? Tough one. For the better is certainly the technology. It's made it so much more efficient and really has tightened up our ability to uh, analyze um, portfolios, analyze products. Um, I, I think that the transparency also is better than it used to be as well. So uh, it's made me, made our client, made our company, and made the whole industry uh, more productive. So that's, that's good. What's bad? 
Nothing's changed on Wall Street, really. Um, you take a good product like indexing and you got to smear it all up by calling it something else. And, you know, active management takes something as pure and beautiful, if you will, as, a, you know, a straight market index fund. And, and now everything is an index. Every active management strategy that you can think of is now an index. And, and you have to add these new indexes to your portfolio to give you diversification. It's kind of complete nonsense. So ETFs, while they've been great to, to promote the idea of uh, John Bogle's philosophy, they have also polluted uh, the pure concept of what indexing is. And, and, and that might be why he's not a huge fan of uh, ETFs. It's one of the reasons. So last question mm -hmm. um, before we have to send you on your way. And I ask this everybody. You started in 1980. Here it is, 2015. What do you know today that you wish you knew when you started out? Wow, that's a long, thoughtful pause. I, yeah, I always tell people as I get older, I know less. So it's, just, it's a difficult it, question. It's not that you know less. It's <laughs> that your head is filled with so much stuff, it's harder to access things. That's what I'm finding. At a certain point, your brain is just full, and I need a backup drive. That, that's what it feels like. But there certainly has to be things that is part of your daily operations, your philosophy, your thought process that would have been enormously helpful when you began. You know, one of my clients who is now deceased uh, said to me, when I started my company, Rick, you're going to be enormously successful. I, I didn't. I didn't think this. I said, "Well, I'm just working out of my living room, out of this <laughs> old wooden desk I pulled out of the trash can." He goes, "You're going to be enormously successful. You have to make a decision. You're either going to just going to continue to work out of your living room and have maybe 60 clients, and you're going to earn a good living with uh, you and your wife and maybe one assistant, or you're going to go out and you're going to build a big multi-billion-dollar money management company, and you're going to hire all kinds of people." And you're going to have all kinds of HR issues, and you're going to have a business that you're going to have to run. And he said, you're going to have to make a decision at some point whether you just want to work out of your living room and just take on the 25 clients and be happy, or whether you want to build this colossal thing. And I don't know if, I guess I, what, what, I, what I learned in the last 25 years is he's absolutely right. I mean, there's nothing wrong was just working out of your living room with 25 clients and helping those 25 clients. And there's nothing wrong with going out and building a multi-billion dollar business. But um, I always thought that it was the right thing to do back when I was 40 years old to go out and build a multi-billion dollar business. But in fact, now that I'm 57, I think that working out of my living room with 25 clients seems not a bad idea. Not such a terrible idea. <laughs> right. A lot less headaches than, than running a big business. Well, Rick, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, you've been listening to my conversation with Rick Ferry, founder, chief investment officer of Portfolio Solutions. Be sure and check out our other podcasts. Take a look at this on Apple iTunes. Look an inch up or down. You'll see the other 40 podcasts. Check out my daily column on Bloomberg View, my regular blog at Ritholtz.com. People want to find you, um, PortfolioSolutions.com. And, and what is your handle on Twitter? Uh, Rick underscore Ferry is my Twitter handle. And I also have a blog website at RickFerry.com. RickFerry.com. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.